All right, looking at your introductory material, it begins this way. Satan is diabolically clever. He was once full of wisdom. He is a fallen creature now, but still retains much of his former wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. He is so bent and warped by sin now, however, that he is full of subtlety and malice. Moreover, he nurses a hatred for the human race that beggars description. He reigns in the unseen world. Countless fallen angels, angelic creatures, some of enormous power are at his command. Moreover, unnumbered demons own his sway and aid his schemes. He is the God of this world, the prince of this world, and the prince of the power of the air. He's also the father of lies. As the God of this world, he is the inspiring genius behind all false religions and the energizing force that gives them their power. The idiom of his language is the lie. He uses the big lie boldly. The principle behind the, quote, big lie is that if someone tells a lie big enough, brazen enough, and often enough, people will believe it. Satan knows, too, the value of mingling truth with error and is a master at it. Also, he knows all about fallen human nature and how to manipulate it. He can dazzle people as an angel of light, terrify them as a roaring lion, or beguile them as that old serpent. When Jesus came, truth incarnate, beyond the reach of temptation, God incarnate, invisible and fearless, Satan's grip upon our planet was put to the test. In the end, Satan urged men to get rid of Jesus by way of the cross. But it didn't work because Jesus came back from the tomb. Jesus ascended into heaven, and once again the world seemed fair game for this master of deceit. Then the Holy Spirit took up the battle. He injected the church into time. The mystical body of Christ was formed to be the instrument of God to hold the evil one in check and to triumph over all of Satan's seats of power. From the very start, Satan recognized the threat that the church posed to his empire of evil. He determined to stamp it out. For 300 years, he hurled wave after wave of persecution at the church in an effort to destroy it by force. He failed. The blood of the martyrs proved to be the seed of the church. All that Satan succeeded in doing by persecution was to fill the ranks of heaven with countless martyrs. They're seated on high in glory and honor. Their names are cheered across the echoing everlasting hills. Satan thought that the church would be an easy conquest. After all, it was made up of very ordinary people. A village tinker here. A local butcher there, or yonder, a fellow who pushed a wheelbarrow through the streets hawking fruit. But just the same, like the humble fishermen and despised tax collectors whom Jesus had chosen for his personal friends, multitudes of these people proved to be mighty spiritual warriors. Every time they fell on their knees, Satan's kingdom shook. Nor could all of his principalities and powers, his rulers of this world's darkness or his wicked spirits in high places, prevent them from breaking through at will to the throne room of the universe. There was only one thing to do with this formidable church, corrupt it. So he took the truth of God and found agents to deny it, distort it, and debase it. He would alter a word here, snip out a bit there, and add something to that. He attacked the word of God, the Son of God, and the Spirit of God. At Colossae, he attacked the deity of Christ first. Then came the additions, intellectualism, ritualism, legalism, mysticism, and aestheticism. It made the head of poor Epaphras, pastor of the church, swim. He was soon out of his death. Raw paganism was one thing. Obsolete Judaism was another. Those were simple errors. Everything was black and white when it came to those kind of attacks. But the error that had invaded Colossae was too deep, too subtle for him. Now, Paul was in Rome. So Epaphras, faithful pastor and shepherd that he was, decided to head there. He would talk to Paul. It was dangerous, of course, to visit a prisoner in Rome. But what was danger? What he was battling was diabolical. Only one man was intellectual enough and spiritual enough to unravel and refute the tangled web of truth and error that was snaring the simple souls 
whom Epaphras was seeking to shepherd for Christ. So off to Rome he went. And sure enough, Paul was willing, able, and eager to help. He seized his pen and went to work. To Satan's horror, what resulted was another divinely inspired, God-breathed, inerrant, flawless, living, powerful epistle to be added to the Word of God. That was Satan's biggest blunder. He threw everything he had at the infant church by way of error and deceit. He forgot that God still had his apostles on earth, able to write scripture, expound truth, and expose error by direct revelation and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So every possible distortion that Satan could dream up has been answered apostolically. He has no new ideas. All he can do now is rehash and juggle the same bankrupt lies and hope that people don't know their Bibles well enough to see through them. The book of Colossians is divided up in our study with basically, we might say three sections. You can maybe say five because there's an introduction and then there's a closing statement. But the three central truths that we find in the book of Colossians are this. There's the truth about Christ. And that occupies the tail end of chapter 1 and uh, through, through the remainder of that chapter. In chapter number 2, we have the truth about the cult. In other words, the type of error that was seeking to infect and pervert and corrupt the church at Colossae. And much of this error and heresy is still at work and still prevalent today. That occupies the second chapter. Chapter 3, through the first few verses of chapter number 4, gives us the truth about the Christian. You know, truth is of no good if it cannot relate to our lives, if it cannot affect us and apprehend us. In other words, if we can't take that truth and put it in shoe leather and make it something meaningful in our lives and, and obey it and apply it and practice it, then the truth can be every bit true, but it's of no use and no help to us. And so Paul sort of addresses these things in course. He, he gives his introductory remarks, and that's what we're going to focus on today. And then he talks about the truth about Christ. I'll tell you, the way to straighten people out is to get their focus on Jesus Christ. If you'll put Christ in his proper place, you'll find that everything else will wind up in its proper place. It's not to say we should neglect maybe the, the sort of uh, tertiary issues, sort of the, the, the things that are on the, the fringe or on the, the borders of the Christian life. We ought to deal with all those things. But it don't do any good to deal with those things if you don't put Christ in his proper place. I think this is where a lot of issues preaching fails. Uh, a lot of preachers have a sermon for everything that comes out of the headlines, but that's all that they ever preach. And they never preach on putting Christ in his pro proper place, falling in love with him, devoting yourself completely to him. And so it's almost like playing whack-a-mole. They spend all their time just running around at different errors and, and issues and hobby horses and problems and things, many of them, that need to be addressed. But it's to no avail because it never gives traction to the believers that are listening to it. Uh, so it's no surprise that Paul addresses the truth about Christ first. And then he takes head-on these doctrinal and theological errors that were prevalent in the church at Colossae, and then he applies them to our lives. I'd remind you that the uh, epistle of Colossians was written from a prison cell. Paul is in prison in Rome. Uh, I agree with what the commentator says there. I think it's probably very likely that Epaphras was the pastor of this church. I think probably that this church was in the house of Philemon. Uh, but I, I believe that Epaphras was the pastor of it. I believe he was the one that was shepherding the people. And I believe that what occasioned this very likely was exactly what's described for you in that vivid introduction that Epaphras came to Rome seeking help from Paul because all of these doctrinal errors and heresies were beginning to crop up and show up in the church. Let's dive into our passage tonight, and uh, we're going to begin by reading just the first two verses. 
And we're just going to walk through these 14 verses. But the way that the outline, you've got it right in front of you, is, uh, is laid out, is it gives us basically six points. It begins with Paul's passion for people, then it goes to Paul's passion for prayer, and then for principle, and then for progress, and then for preachers, and then for perspective. And so that's how we're going to handle the text tonight. We find some familiar phrases that Paul uses in these opening verses, but then we find some things unique to this epistle. Let's read the first two verses. The Bible says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, something you'll find to be very common, when a person writes a lot of correspondence, we don't do this as much nowadays, everything's digital, we email, we text, we, uh, you know, send messages on Facebook. But even today, I've got certain people in my contact list, when I, te- when I text them, they always have a tagline at the bottom of, of their text message. Some of you, when you email me, when you text me, stuff like that, you'll have information that you plug in there so that every time you send a message, it says maybe your name or it might say, you know, in Christ or God's blessings and have your name, maybe have some information about you. And we include those things not because they're unimportant, but because they're vitally important. Let me tell you one of the great dangers when you study through the Word of God is it's real easy to dismiss the first few verses and the last few verses of an epistle. Because you sort of say to yourself, well, you know, I already know this. I already know Paul wrote it. Uh, What do I care if Timothy was there with him? I know he's writing to the church at Colossae. And yeah, I'm sure they were uh, faithful brethren. And I know he wants to wish them grace and peace as he did so many times uh, over and over again. But I don't think Paul was so cavalier in what he pinned down. And I'll tell you this, I know, regardless of, of Paul's disposition about this and attitude, I know that the Holy Ghost was certainly not cavalier or flippant in pinning down every single God-breathed word in this Bible. So they all have importance. And I think in these first two verses, what you really get a hold of is Paul's passion for people. Paul was a people person. He invested his life in people. Everywhere he went, he was interacting with people, sharing the gospel engaging in conversations with them, try to win them to Christ, try to present the truth, the Word of God. First place Paul always went when he went to a new uh, city, if it was a city with any population of Jewish people, is he'd go to a synagogue. Why? Because he knew he'd find people there. (laughs) He wasn't going there for, for the coffee and the donuts. He was going there because there were people there that he could engage with and talk to about Jesus Christ. So these first two verses, it shouldn't surprise us, reveal some things about Paul's attitude towards people. Notice first off that there is a phrase that opens this book up that reveals Paul as being a minister of the faith. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, notice this next phrase, by the will of God. That's an important phrase. It's important because anybody that's sent of God has to be sent by the will of God. But I think it's also important because it has a particular connotation and application in the life of Paul. You've got to remember, Paul's not a guy that was sanctioned and ordained to go out initially uh, by other men. Uh, Paul was somebody that met Christ on the road to Damascus. He was not raised in the company of the apostles. He wasn't like John Mark that was raised in cottage prayer meetings where the apostles were gathering around, praying for the release of Peter, praying for the power of God. He was a man that had grown up very religious but very unrighteous. And he was a man that had grown up and had lived much of his adult life hating Jesus Christ and hating these people that followed, these disciples of Jesus Christ. And, of course, God appears to him on the road to Damascus, 
makes his presence and his person known to him. You know the story. You've read it a hundred times. How that God knocks him off the high horse, blinds him, convicts him. In one fell swoop, only God could do this. God takes away one type of eyesight and gives him another type of eyesight. God blinds him, but he also opens his eyes to the spiritual reality of his condition. And, of course, Paul goes then, name is Saul at that time. The gospel is presented to him, and he believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. The scales fall off of his eyes. And then he immediately goes seek the approval of Peter and James and John, right? It's not what your Bible says. In fact, he went away for years and spent years in the backside of the desert with the Lord, God revealing some things to him. In fact, when he finally shows up in Jerusalem... To speak to him, he's already been preaching. He's already been winning people to Christ. He's already been serving God. He's already been in the ministry. Going to Jerusalem was certainly a courtesy, and it was certainly providential. I'm not trying to be dismissive of it, but I think if you'd ask Paul, he'd say, Oh yeah, I thought at some point I ought to get around to going and talking to those apostle guys. (laughs) I thought I probably ought to drop in, let him know who I am, give him my business card, tell him, Hey, I'm not a nut, I'm not a kook, uh, but the Lord has sent me. His apostleship was not something that had been birthed by the will and desire and approval of Peter or of John, certainly not of James, who I think, if we read our Bible correctly, probably had maybe some animosity towards Paul. No, Paul was an apostle by the will of God. That was the certification of his ministry, is that God had saved him, changed him, commissioned him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. I like how one commentator put it, said that he was ordained by the ordination of the nail-pierced hands. He's an apostle by the will of God. Now, why is that important to the church at Colossae? He is conveying to them that he has both the position and power of an apostle. And so they better listen up to what he's about to say. Because he does not, he does not wield the sword in vain, to borrow one of Paul's statements that he used about government. There were several times in the Pauline epistles where it's apparent that he exercised apostolic authority, turned people over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the soul might be saved, where he commanded the church to cast somebody out of the midst, which in that day, uh, very likely could result in, 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 you know, despondency and, uh, in abandonment. He wielded great authority. And he wants to remind him before he ever starts to deal with the heresy, just exactly who he is. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And then he reminds him. And, you know, we sort of, I think his parents sometimes do this. I know I do it sometimes. Uh, sometimes if I, if I'm maybe a little gruff with my son in instructing him, I might turn around afterwards and say, hey, you know, I love you, right? And it's almost a way of saying, now understand I'm trying to temper my rebuke with an understanding that I love you. And it's not to nullify my rebuke, and it's not to, to negate my warning, but it is to temper it by making you understand that I've given that out of love. That's sort of what Paul does when he mentions, I think, the name Timothy, and then he uses this phrase. He says, Timothy, our brother. Timotheus, our brother. He wants to remind them he is a minister of the faith, but also that he's a member of the family, and that the church of God is a family. He hints at the brotherhood of Christians, Timothy being his brother. And there's a lot I'd love to say here that I don't have time for. But just imagine how it thrilled Timothy's heart that Paul would speak of in that way. Timothy was a convert of Paul. And uh, he, he was sort of, I mean, we even today, when a preacher talks about an older man of God that is his mentor, will talk about that man being their Paul and them being their Timothy. Uh, that was sort of the, the dynamic of the relationship. He talked about being Timothy's father in the faith. But here he describes him as a co-laborer, as a companion. Then look with me at verse number two. He mentions the body of Christ, not only the brotherhood of Christians, but the body of Christ. He says to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, Uh, the way that the outline has it here. And I like the way he presents it. He gives a family description. 
in verse number two, at least in the first portion of it. And he, and he lists three things, if you look carefully. First off, he lists who we are as believers. He says, to the saints and faithful brethren. To the saints and faithful brethren. That term saint has been co-opted by the uh, you know, uh, Roman church and, and by the papacy to ha- carry with it the idea of some old dusty guy that performed miracles and enough money was paid and enough prayers were prayed and now they've been venerated. Now we ought to pray to them. That's what the Roman church teaches. But the word of God carries no such connotations with the word saint. You know what a saint means? A saint simply means a saved sinner. That's what a saint is. A saint is someone, in fact, the word means separated, set aside, set apart, consecrated to God. So a saint is somebody that has been saved and has been set aside for the Lord, to be to live for Him, to be used of Him, to serve Him. And every one of us that have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ were saints. Not because we always are saintly in our actions. Certainly not because the world has deemed us to be venerated and worthy of prayer and admiration. But because we've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ and we've been accepted in the Beloved by justification. Uh, he describes who we are. We're saints. He describes what we are. He says we're faithful brethren. That word faithful, I'm going to blow your mind. You ready? You know what it means? Full of faith. <laughs> That's deep waters. And I hope you brought your waders. You didn't know it was going to go that deep. Faithful. Full of faith. But when we use the term faithful, it carries a lot of ideas with it. It carries the idea of devoted, of having allegiance, of being loyal, of being dedicated. I think one of the my, my favorite ideas that sort of swims around the word faithful is a true representation. Something that's true to the original. For instance, we might say, that, that is a, a faithful replica. Or that is a faithful render. If a person writes a song and someone else takes that song and, and rearranges it, if they've done a good job and paid homage to the original, we'd say that's a faithful rendition of that song. Or they might do it with a play or turn a book into a movie, whatever it might be. We might say that's faithful to the original. And I think the greatest thing that we as believers can be and can aspire to is to be faithful brethren, to be like the original. Well, who's the original? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what a Christian is. That's why they started calling them Christians at Antioch. was because they were Christ-like. It was a derogatory term originally. But Christians took and co-opted that thing and took it and owned it as their own because they said, man, if you want to say I'm like Christ, I'll accept that. That's what we ought to be is like Christ. And so the greatest and highest praise that Paul can give the church at Colossae is that they're faithful. And let me just take a short aside here. I don't have time to be taking detours, but I'm going to do it anyway. Let me take a short aside and say this, that the greatest thing anybody can ever say about you in your life is that you're faithful to the Lord. More than being talented, more than being capable, more than being dynamic, more than being impressive, more than being effective. I think the greatest thing anybody can say about you or me is they're faithful, man. They're there when God wants them to be there. They don't miss. They don't lay down. They don't lay out. They're faithful. They're where they need to be, when they need to be there. You see, all those other attributes are meaningless if you're not available. You see, ability means nothing without availability. You can have all the ability in the world. You you ever been doing a project or working on something, and maybe you was out? One of the worst things in the world, I've started doing this just, just to give my own peace of mind. In my car, I've started carrying a, an air pump and a battery. And it's one of these battery-operated, you know, almost like a drill would be air pumps. And I've got a jump, jump box with me. And, uh, you know, if I'm taking a long road trip, I'll take an impact driver and put it in there as well so that if I, if I change a tire, I need to get a floor jack to put it in there as well. How many times have you been out and needed something and you had it, 
you were able, but the problem was it wasn't available. And it don't help you if it's sitting at home. It's got to be there when you need it. You can have the nicest tool set in the world, but if you're stuck out on I-75 with a flat tire and pouring rain, it don't do no good to sit around and think about all the tools you got at home. They've got to be there at hand's reach. Same thing's true of a Christian. You can have all those things. You can, be, you can be immensely able, but if you're not available, then it means absolutely nothing. They were faithful brethren. And then I think this is fascinating. He talks about where they were. He says, to the saints and faithful brethren, and notice this, this paradigm here, in Christ, which are at Colossae. Now, there's so much we can talk about and do with that phrase, but notice how they, they ring in your ears in juxtaposition. They are in Christ, but they are also at Colossae. They're in two places at once. You know, that's true of you and me as well. Every one of us that's saved, we're in Christ, but we're also at Walridge Baptist Church. We're at Walridge Road. We're at Knoxville, Tennessee. We're at the state of Tennessee. We're at the country of the United States of America. In other words, we might say it this way, that we have a context that we are dwelling within, but we have a greater spiritual reality that we are carrying with us. And both of those things need to be kept where they're needed to be. And what I mean by that is this. Both are needed. See, there's some people that are in Christ, but they ain't in this world. Amen? You ever met any folks like that? They got all the spirituality and religion in the world, but they can't tie their own shoes. Uh, they, they, they don't live in this world. They, don't, they have no practicality about them. Let me give you an example of who that would be. The monks living up in the mountains somewhere, taking a vow of silence and wearing robes. They, they want to be in a spiritual condition, but they don't want to live in the world. And so you know what they do? When was the last time a monk walked up and handed you a gospel tract? They're not touching the world around them. There is the other side. You know, for every mile of road, there's two miles of ditch. There is the other side. There is the other ditch, which is people that are so earthly minded that they're of no heavenly use. And they've gotten consumed with materialism and their job and their hobbies and sports and, and leisure and money and all these things that have a place... But they should not be the preeminent thing in our lives. The key to this is the word balance. Listen, it's good to be in Christ. If we're going to get to heaven, we've got to be in Christ. But if we're going to make a difference here, we've got to be in this world in the sense that we have to reach out and touch the world around us. By the same token, you cannot touch the world around you effectively for the cause of Christ if you're not in Christ. And if you're not spiritually walking in fellowship and communion with Him. They were in both places at once. And then he uses this term. He gives a family description, but then he gives the family doxology. And this is not, again, this is not boilerplate language. He says, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you've heard me say this before, but I'd remind you that this is a dual greeting that greets, traditionally speaking, both Gentile and Jew. Uh, when uh, Romans and Greeks would see each other, they would say, hail. They would say, grace. And whenever Jews would see each other, and they still, many of them do today, they would say shalom, which means peace. So when Paul uses this dual uh, greeting, he is greeting both Gentile and Jew. But I think there's a deeper spiritual truth, because he's going to go on to pray for some things for them, talk about some things he sees in their life and some things he wants to see in their life. And I think the fact that he opens up saying, I desire both the grace of God and the peace of God to be in your life is a significant truth. One commentator said it this way, that grace is the root of salvation and peace is the fruit of salvation. And remember, our, our, our theme, our, our big idea in this study is complete in Christ. And so in the opening verses, Paul reminds them that they need to be in, it needs to be grace and peace. They need to be complete in Christ. They need to know that they're saved and they need to live like they're saved. 
I jotted this down. Uh, in these opening verses, Paul draws the reader into four things. The circle of his love, the certainty of sainthood, the circumference of fidelity, and the center of God's blessing. So we see Paul's passion for people. Look at verse number three with me. Paul says, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Isn't it just like Paul to not make it three sentences without talking about prayer? And that tells us something about Paul's passion for prayer. Notice these three simple thoughts and we'll move on. First off, notice how thankfully he prayed. We're going to say a word about this here in a little bit, but Paul's prayers were always predominantly of spiritual significance, not temporal significance, not material things. And I don't want to belabor it because I'm going to talk about it more here in a moment. But it's interesting. The first thing he says is, man, we're thanking God for what he's doing in your life. Let, uh, let it be said that we're thankful Christians, and not just for the food in our fridge and our pantry, not just for the car that we drive, the clothes on our back, the paycheck that comes to us week after week. Let it be said that we're thankful for believers, for other people of God. You might find out that you love people a lot more, the people in your life. I'm talking about saved people, that you love them a lot more if you take time to be thankful for them. You can find a hundred things to criticize them for and complain about concerning them. I know that. And you can say, listen, you can find a thousand things to criticize me for, complain about me about. But we'd be a lot better off if instead we'd endeavor to try to find things we can be thankful for in their life and to try to try to find ways to appreciate them. So I see how thankfully he prayed. Then he says this. He says, we give thanks to who? To God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how thoughtfully he prayed. Paul knew who he was praying to and why he was praying. He was praying to God but not just some abstract, distant concept of God, a very definite, real, knowable God. This God was not just a God, it certainly was not just any God, nor was it just the God. But this God was the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He knows definitely who He's praying to, and He knows, uh, He doesn't just know who He's praying to, He knows who He's praying to. He knows Him personally. And why is that of significance? Because of who He's the Father of. He's the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why can we expect God to answer our prayers? There's people all over the world. We don't ever give thought to that because we've been steeped in, in Christianity our whole life. But you understand there's people all over the world that grapple with the question, why would God listen to me pray? Is there a God? Is He interested in hearing me pray? What do I have to do to get Him to hear me? We just take for granted He hears. You know why that is? Because those of us that are Christians, we know His Son. I don't ever have to think to myself, will Dad listen if I need to talk to him? Nor do I even have to feel that way about other people's parents if I know them personally, if they're a close personal friend. I don't ever have to wonder, would they listen to me if I had to come and ask something of them? I know they would because I know the relationship I have with their son or their daughter. And so that relationship begets the faith and confidence we have in prayer. And then notice how thoroughly he prayed. He says, praying always for you, always for you. Uh, Paul, of course, writes this from a prison cell. And I'm sure Paul had more time for prayer now than he probably ever had at any time in his life. And he could have done a number of things, but you know what he did? He turned that storm in his life, he turned that waiting period in his life, he turned that prison experience into his life, into a prayer experience in his life. And he said, I may not be able to go out and preach, but I can pray. I may not be able to go to the places and be, be there in person, that I wish I could be at, that I can be there in prayer. I may not be able to see the person personally that I want to see, but I can pray for them powerfully 
He used his time in prayer. I like what one commentator said when he described this. He said, uh, no doubt Paul had prayer meetings all the time. And here he stands there, chained up to a Roman soldier. And this is what the, Roman, the, the commentator said. He said, don't you know that the Roman soldiers felt not like Paul was chained to them, but like they were chained to Paul? <laughs> you can imagine as Paul is having prayer meetings and getting alone with God, rejoicing. Listen, he, when he was in the prison at Philippi, what did him and Silas do, man? They, they, they prayed and sang praises unto God. Don't you know those Roman soldiers dreaded having to have duty to watch old Paul the missionary because they knew he was going to spend the whole time praying and talking to them about the Lord and rejoicing and singing, and they was going to have to for hours sit there and listen to it. He probably won a few of them to Christ. I I, I don't find that in my Bible, but I I wouldn't be surprised if I found it out in heaven. Uh, Paul was a man that was praying all the time. I've been preaching a lot on prayer. I'm not going to belabor it, but I'll just say this. Prayer ought to be something that is not just an event in our life. It ought to be a way of life. We ought to keep an open line of communication. Paul says, during this deep and consistent prayer life that God has blessed me with, he said, I pray for you all the time. So we see Paul's passion for prayer. Look at verse 4 and 5. He says, this is when we started praying for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints... For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, where have you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel? There were three things that Paul was fascinated with about the church at Colossae. Now, let me just remind you, Paul, to our knowledge, never met the majority of this church. He would have known Philemon. Philemon was a convert of his. Uh, He would have known Onesimus because Onesimus was a convert, was a runaway slave that he wanted to Christ in Rome. He would have known Epaphras because he describes Epaphras as having communicated their love of the saints to him and Timothy personally. He knew some people in the church, but he says later on in chapter number two that he longed to see them face to face. He never met these people, the majority of them, but they were on his prayer list. How did they get there? Because there were some things that they made a priority in their life that were a priority in Paul's life. We see Paul's passion for certain principles. And he mentions three of them. First, he mentions saving faith. He says, when I heard that you all had put your faith in Jesus Christ, that got you on my prayer list. He had an interest in people that knew God. He's taking an interest in them because they know Christ as their Savior and they're exercising faith in Him. Faith, I think, is a profoundly misunderstood um, attribute in the life of a believer. I, I, I hesitate to use the word attribute, uh, action, activity, however you want to describe it, attitude in the life of a believer. We think of faith as being deeply and intimately connected with, with feelings and with resolve and with peace of mind. But faith is very simply taking God at his word and reacting appropriately. Reacting appropriately. God says such and such. We say, okay, I believe you, God. And we respond in the rational, reasonable, commanded, appropriate way. That's what faith is. And he describes their faith, uh, noting that their faith, not, not noting how much there was of it, but noting who their faith was in. And I'll remind you of this simple truth that I believe is very important. Faith is not about the amount. You remember Christ went to great lengths to declare that. After he healed a boy that the disciples could not heal. He said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can pluck up mountains and say, remove over to here and they'll move over there. Now, a lot of people take that to be a blank check from God. If I just have faith, I can move a mountain. No, because God never said it was his will for you to move every mountain. What Christ was teaching was not that you can do anything you want with faith. But he was teaching that faith is not about the amount. It's about the object. The, the significance of their faith was that their faith was in Christ. 
Some people, when they have faith, they get troubled because they worry that, that they don't have the ability to maintain that faith and that resolution of mind. Well, if that's the kind of faith you have, you don't have faith in God, you have faith in your faith. Some people have faith and then they get troubled because they don't have some overwhelming feeling that wells up inside of them. Well, then you're not putting your faith in, in God or His Word, you're putting your faith in feelings. See, the key to faith, you can put your faith in the wrong person and get you in a mess of trouble. The key to faith, what makes faith worthwhile, what makes it matter, what makes it effective and powerful is not the amount or even the sincerity. There's people sincerely going to hell believing they're on their way to heaven. It's the object. What are you putting your faith in? Paul said, I'm interested in you because you put your faith in Christ. Then he mentions their love. He says, also, I heard of the love that ye have to all the saints. And I could not help but think of our Lord's words in John 13, 35, when he said to his disciples, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one to another. Paul said, one of the things that gets me excited, man, is that I've heard that you love one another, that you genuinely, deeply, sincerely care about each other. Then he uses the word hope. Also for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Where have you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel? Now the word hope, and we dealt with this quite a bit, I believe when we were studying the book of Hebrews. The word hope has been robbed, I think, of much of its importance and much of its potency, if we can use that term. We use the word hope and we think of it as a word of incredulousness. Like for instance, do you think pastor is going to finish by 8 o'clock? And you're thinking, boy, I hope so. But you say that because you don't think I will. Let me swap that around for a little bit. My father-in-law is laying up at Vanderbilt right now. And uh, he's gone through two liver transplants. We don't know what the will of God is. But I'll tell you this. When a doctor walks in the room and we say, Doc, how are things looking? And he says, well, listen, there's hope. Then all of a sudden that word hope means something. Hope, depending on its context, is a powerful, potent, meaningful, and moving Word, And again, the question with the word hope is what are we hoping in? Or we might say this, what gives us hope? Or let me say it one more way. Where does our hope lie? Where does it lie? Well, where does Paul say that their hope lie? Laid? Lame? Whatever you'd say, I don't know. Where did their hope lay? For their hope, which is laid up for you in heaven. That term literally means treasured up in heaven. In other words, it means the thing that your hope is anchored to is eternal. It's beyond the reach of this world's corruptibility. It is a hope that Paul says in the book of Hebrews is steadfast and sure and entereth within the veil. Now he uses these three words, faith, love, and hope. And these words are found, this trifecta, over and over and over again in the Bible. It describes to us this, faith is the content of our salvation. We are saved because we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and even our salvation as it is manifesting itself in our life is expressed through our effectual faith in His Word. Love is the character of salvation. What does it make you do? What does the old-time religion make you do? It makes me love everybody. A person that's born again, Christ said, this is how men are going to know. This is, this is the characteristic. This is the thing that's going to tell them that you know me is you have love one to another. And hope is the consummation of our salvation. Hope is what makes our salvation saved. And I want to be careful how I say that. I understand when we accept Christ, we're born again entirely, thoroughly, to the uttermost from the moment that we're saved. But the thing that makes us live like we're saved 
is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. It's what injects energy and power into our walk with the Lord. So Paul reveals his passion for principle. Look at verse number 6. He describes his passion for progress. Now he ended verse number 5 by invoking the term gospel. He says, which he heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. And then he says some things that he desires to see the gospel do. First, he desires to see the gospel take root globally. He says, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day you heard it, and knew the grace of God in truth. Paul says this gospel thing, this thing that has changed your life, it ain't just changing your life, it's changing everybody's life that will believe on it. The gospel spread at a breakneck pace in the first hundred years of uh, after Christ. Um, it, it's almost unfathomable to study just everywhere the gospel went. Now, why is this important? We always have to come back to that. Why is Paul saying this? You can't just say he's saying it because it's true, because there's lots of true things he could have said. Why is he saying this true thing to these people? He's wanting to remind them that they're not alone. That they're not alone. We sometimes, here in the West, we feel like we're losing the battle. And we look at a world that's getting more corrupt and more wicked and more uh, brazen with their depravity. And it feels culturally like we're losing the battle. Maybe in some ways we are, although I'd remind you that the gates of hell still won't prevail against the church. But we need to be reminded, and this is a lot of the reason, by the way, in secular, communist, humanist countries, they black out news. Because they don't want us here in the West seeing the great work that God's doing in many of these places. Man, God's still in the soul-saving business. And it ought to be as believers in a local church that one of our missions is missions. Every person ought to invest personally in the work of missions. I don't just mean pay your tithes to the church and the church support missions, but every person ought to, aside from their tithes, support missions directly over and above what the church is doing. If you're not in the missions business, you're not in God's business. Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. God gave, Christ gave the church before He left this world a great commission. The first thing God did when He wanted the gospel to go out was not form a committee. It was not send out a, a, an exploratory uh, committee and team. It was not do a survey. He saved uh, gospel preachers. He saved them, gave them the gospel, commissioned them, sent them out. They went out and shook the world. God's in the missions business. He desires to save souls, not just here, but there and everywhere. And then he wants the gospel to bear fruit locally. And I wrote down these two phrases. The first is mission-minded, take root globally. The second is ministry-minded, bear fruit locally. If missions is the chief external work of the church, then ministry is the chief internal work of the church. We ought to be endeavoring to take this truth of the gospel and go outward and reach people But we also ought to endeavor to see the truth of the gospel and, by extension, the truth of the entirety of the Word of God bear fruit in our lives personally. In other words, God ought to, through us, be getting more a hold of others, but also be getting more a hold of ourselves. In order to combat this, Satan persecutes the mission work, but often, in in, in opposition to this, Satan perverts the ministry work. Paul says, I'm praying, I'm asking God, I'm begging Him that this gospel that has begun to bear fruit in you would continue to bear fruit in you, that it would continue to do the work, that the same thing that God's doing in others' lives, He'd be doing in your life, and the same thing He's doing in your life, He'd be doing in the lives of others. He mentions His passion for progress, then He goes to His passion for preachers. Look at verses 7 and 8. 
He says, as you also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. I don't have time to dwell on this, but I just want to mention it. He says three things about Epaphras. And this tells us something about where Paul's heart was. Uh, I don't know if Paul knew Epaphras prior to this meeting, but I know that evidently in this meeting, in this time, God knit their hearts together. And here's this great spiritual giant, Paul. I mean, this is a man that has shook two continents for Christ. And when he talks about this pastor of this little church, this little town of Colossae, you ought to study. You ought to get, if you can, you ought to get this book, read some, about what Colossae was at that time. It had at one time been a very important place. The road to Ephesus uh, ran through there, and Ephesus, of course, was a great commercial center. But by the time that the church of Colossae, that Paul's writing to them, there's sort of a backwater. There's sort of just a pit stop on the way to get there. They're not of great significance anymore. And they're not a very large city. And here's this little pastor, if we can use that term. I'm a little pastor, so not a little pastor, but just, you know. A pastor, a nobody. He's a nobody. He's pastoring this little group of people in a congregation, eat up with bad doctrine. He's nobody. But man, he knocks on Paul's jail cell door. Paul says, come on in, sir, and let me just take a few moments and encourage you. Man, would to God we were all that way with people that we deem to be of lesser spiritual stature than us. You know, there's people God puts in your life that you ought, they're the bless their heart people, right? That that's your attitude, bless their heart, bless their heart. Hey, listen, maybe God will bless your heart if you'll treat him as somebody more than just a bless their heart person. Paul said, man, this guy, Epaphras, he's three things. And he tells his congregation, you better recognize what you've got in Epaphras. He says, first off, he's a fruitful messenger. They had learned of the gospel from Epaphras. When nobody else would go into Colossae, Epaphras said, I'll go and I'll proclaim the truth of the gospel. He was a fellow missionary of Paul. He calls him a fellow servant, means a fellow slave. He says, listen, I, I may be the Apostle Paul. He may just be Epaphras. But in the eyes of God, we're the same rank. In the eyes of God, we're just a couple of nobodies telling everybody about somebody that can make a difference in their life. He's a fellow servant. He had proclaimed the gospel in Colossae. Not only that, he had planted the church. Paul was a church planter. Really the only... The, I want to be careful what I say here. The primary, the primary uh, form of biblical missions... Really, what we see predominantly in Scripture, possibly to the exclusion of any other form or model, is church planting. People going to a place, winning people to Christ, planting a church there. You say, well, preacher, what about all those other things that they can do? Yeah, it ought to be a local church there that does those things. That's wonderful. Places want to build wells? That's great, man. Uh, And I don't have a problem with people giving shoes and money and food and all that stuff. But God's arm to do those things is the local church. And the thing that God puts priority on is local churches planting more local churches. So when Paul sees a pastor, he sees a church plant. He sees, man, this is a guy that didn't tuck and run when things got tough. He rolled up his sleeves and he worked and he labored until there was something there that could perpetuate. And then he describes him as a faithful minister. Now I wrote this down. He proclaimed the gospel. He planted the church. But then he pastored the people. He didn't just fly in, set up a tent, preach a big meeting, organize a bunch of people. 
establish a charter and then tuck out and leave with nobody there to pastor, with nobody there to lead them. Not saying a person can't do that and be faithful as long as they leave it in the hands of somebody that can lead and can pastor those people. But a pastor said, hey, if nobody else will show up and do it, I'll stay. And I will, I will pour my life into these people. Paul had a passion for preachers, and it's evident in what he says about a pastor. Then we come to sort of what is the last little chunk here, if I can say it that way. That may be a crass way to say it. But the last chunk of Scripture. And it reveals to us Paul's passion for perspective. Now, this bridges the gap between what is introductory information and what gets into the heart of the doctrinal portion of the book of Colossians. And it begins with a prayer. He says, I want you to know what we're praying for. Verse number 9. He says, for this cause we also... Since the day we heard it, heard what? All the things that you just mentioned about their faith, about their love, about their hope, about what the gospel was doing through them and in them, uh, what they had heard from their pastor that had come and had borne his heart and had told uh, Paul how much they, they loved each other. When he began to hear about that, he began to pray for him. And this is what he began to pray for. Now, let me pause here and say this. I wanted to say it a second ago, but I, I was disciplined and good and obedient, and I managed to wait until now. When Paul prayed... You rarely search the prayers of Paul. All through the Pauline epistles, you'll find Paul praying. All through the book of Acts, you'll find Paul praying. And you'll very rarely, mostly never, but very rarely, find him praying for the kind of things that most of us pray for. You don't find him praying for financial needs. You don't find him praying for uh, people's secular temporal endeavors to be successful. You don't very often find him praying for people to be healed of sickness. Not only is it wrong to pray for those things, and no doubt Paul did at times in his life pray for those things, but the things that are engraved on the tablet of eternal Scripture, the things that are galvanized in God-breathed, infallible, inerrant Bible, the things that God preserved for us are always spiritual things that he's praying for. Uh, let, me, let me give you some examples. Read through this with me and notice it. It says, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire what? you might get a good paycheck, better job, better car, better clothes, that you might, you know, have more, uh, you know, influence, have more power, get a promotion at work, whatever it is. No. He says, we, we pray and desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness. Now, the prayer that Paul describes here, and this is what I mean when I say Paul's passion for perspective. He's wanting to get their mind on the right thing. He's wanting them to understand what is of value in their life. And this, this section, this theological prayer, if we can call it that, has two portions. First, it has a petition, and that's what we just read. And he basically asks for three things for their life. First, he asks that God would grant them spiritual vision. That they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. One of the things we ought to endeavor for more than anything in our life is to know the will and mind of God for our life. Listen, let me ask you a question that's going to shame both of us. Do we really, really pray the way that we ought to over the decisions we're making in life? Do we pray over the jobs we take? Do we pray over the... The, you know, I just got through buying a house a couple of years ago. Do we pray? Do we pray over the moves that we make? Do we pray over the church that we attend? Do we, do we pray over the relationships that we have with people? Do we pray over the cars we buy? I just bought a car not too long ago. Mike just bought one, two the other day, in fact. Big money. But 
Are we praying over those things? And I don't just mean praying that we'll get the best out of them, but praying and saying, Lord, what do you want for me in these things? We're praying over the way we parent our kids, over the way we influence our grandkids, our nieces, our nephews. Are we praying that God would make known to us what he desires of our lives? It's interesting the words Paul uses here. He uses the term knowledge. And remember, he's getting ready to battle Gnostics. Gnostics are people that claim to have an extra scriptural knowledge, extra revelation from God. And he sort of takes that word back. I like that he does that. He says we ought to be praying for knowledge, real knowledge, the knowledge of God. In all wisdom, wisdom is the application of that knowledge. There's a, some of the dumbest people I know are smarter than I'll ever be. You met people like that? They got all the knowledge in the world. Like I said, they can barely tie their shoes. They don't know what to do with it. We need wisdom. And then he uses the term spiritual understanding. It has the idea of discernment. Discernment. In other words, we might say this. Wisdom is the application of truth. And spiritual understanding is the discrimination of truth. Discerning it. Discriminating between what's right and what's wrong. He says, I'm praying for you that you will know the will of God, know what to do with the will of God, and know when something's not the will of God. He's praying for the spiritual vision. Also, he's praying for spiritual vitality for him. He lists three things. He says, I'm praying that you'll walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. It's interesting. I was reading through, and there's three times that that phrase is used, walk worthy, in the Pauline epistles. One time is here in Colossians, we're to walk worthy of the Lord. Another time is uh, in Ephesians, it says we're to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called. And it's escaping. Now, I think First Thessalonians is where the other one is found. But it says we're to walk worthy of God. Three times God emphasizes that we are to be worthy in our walk. Now, none of us can be worthy of our walk, but every one of us can be worthy in our walk. Ain't none of us worthy to walk for the Lord, but we can walk in a worthy way. And that's what he's saying. I'm praying that you'll have the right kind of walk, the outward life that you have, your testimony, your actions, uh, the testimony that you have before others. Then he speaks of their works. He says, I'm praying for your Christian works. He says, and all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work. So many of us, listen, we want to be, oftentimes we want to be a master of one trade and a jack of none. Or we want to be a jack of all trades and a master of none. And what God really wants is for us to be balanced in our approach. Not, a false balance is an abomination. I understand what the, Solomon's saying about deception there, but there's an application in our lives to having the right balance. He says, I don't just want you to be fruitful in one good work. I want you to be, what, what's the term, a one-trick pony? I want you to be fruitful in every good work. I want you to endeavor to have a well-rounded life in serving God. And then he says he's praying for the Christian wonder. Wonder is the way we said it. And look what it says in verse number uh, 10. It says, increasing in the knowledge of God. He says, I'm praying for you that you'd be growing in how much you know the Lord. That you'd be knowing more of Him today than you knew yesterday. Let me ask you the simple question that you know I'm about to ask. Are you closer to God today than you were a year ago? Paul said, I'm praying that you will be. Then he says he's praying for their spiritual victory. Verse number 11. He says two things. He gives them the secret to spiritual victory. This is what it is. You ready? Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. Paul says, I'm praying that you'd learn to operate not in your own strength, but in his strength. In fact, not just in his strength and not just out of his strength, but according to his glorious might and power. I heard this years ago, I think of J. Vernon McGee commentary. He told the story 
to illustrate the difference between out of and according to. For instance, if we were to say that, that, we, that God blesses us out of His grace or God blesses us according to His grace. He told the story of two men that were on a golf course and each of them had a caddy walking with them. And they both were immensely wealthy men. And they came to the final, the 18th hole, and, and I don't know, I guess the clown doesn't spit the ball out then, so you've got to go home. But they get to the end of the course, and they're getting ready to part ways, and they each turn around to tip their caddy. And one of them reaches into his pocket, and he pulls out a $5 bill and hands it to the guy and says, Hey, you've done a good job. I appreciate you. And the guy says, Well, thank you, sir, and turns around and walks away. And the other fella, both of them immensely rich, the other fella reaches into his pocket and pulls out 10 $100 bills. He puts $1,000 in that caddy's hand. He says, hey, listen, I appreciate you. You did a really good job today. The first man tipped him out of his riches. But the second man tipped him according to his riches. God's desire is not just that we be strengthened with all might out of his glorious power or in his glorious power, but according to his glorious power. The same power that flung the stars into the sky, the same power that keeps the sun from withering away, the same power that parted the Red Sea, the same power that clothed the earth into that power is the power that God says, I want you to walk in and I want you to walk according to. The secret is to quit doing things in our strength and do them in God's strength. And then he speaks to the scope of it. And I'll tell you, I'm making a dead break for 8 o'clock, so you be patient with me. He says, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, unto all what? Patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. You know what part of our problem is? We want God's strength so that we can move mountains. Sometimes God wants to give us strength to climb the mountain. We want God's strength to be able to part the Red Sea. Sometimes God wants to give us strength to ride out the storm. What is it that God strengthens us for and unto? Patience. Long-suffering. Patience patience is putting up with it. Long-suffering is really putting up with it. And then he uses this word with joyfulness. That's putting up with it in the right spirit and the right attitude. The greatest mark of spiritual strength in a person's life is the ability to be joyful in the midst of unpleasant situations. The, the ability, you know, Christ said this about it in John fifteen eleven. He said that the things that he had said unto them and written unto them, he had done that, that my joy might remain in you, he said, and then that your joy might be full. He said, the influence I put in your life, I put in there so that you can live for me and live for me with the right spirit and attitude. So he gives the scope of spiritual victory. Now, we've got to close out here. Look at verse number 12. We go to the praise portion of this uh, prayer, if you want to say it that way. He says this, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in life, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. His petition is that they be spiritual in their vision, vitality, and victory, but his praise is to God for doing three things. First, for remaking us. He says that the Father hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in life. Now, when it says making us meet, it don't mean pork chops or cube steak. But what it means for something to be meat is for it to be appropriate. Uh, the words, I think, that kind of swim around this are the ideas of something being efficient and qualified, prepared and ready. And one of the greatest things Paul says, you know what we ought to thank God for in your life and mine, is that he was willing to remake us from the fallen image of Adam 
to the resurrected image, image of Jesus Christ. Listen, we couldn't even live the life that God desires for us if he hadn't first fundamentally and radically transformed us by the new birth and the indwelling of the Spirit of God. We would be completely ill-equipped. We could not do it. If God was to give us everything that we had lost in Adam, to give it right back to us without giving us the Spirit of God to dwell in us, we wouldn't even know what to do with it. We'd have no desire to go to church. We'd have no desire to read our Bible. We'd have no desire to pray. We'd have no desire to live as anybody else. We would just simply go on in our broken condition. But he changes. I like this. The commentator drew my attention to the words of the prodigal son. I think this is a good example. The prodigal, whenever he left in Luke chapter number 15, he said, Father, give me. That's us in our natural condition. When he came back, you know what he said? First thing he said to his father, Father, make me. When he left, he said, give me the portion of goods that follows me. When he comes back, he says, Father, make me as one of the hired servants. That's what God does in us. He, he, he takes us from just wanting to wanting to be changed. And he remakes us. Not only for remaking us, but for rescuing us. Now, I think it's interesting that these two words are given in juxtaposition. He made us meet, ready, efficient, qualified, capable, uh, able to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And then you know what he did? He delivered us from the power of darkness. And I've translated this into the kingdom of his dear son. How did he do that? You might remember that in the Garden of Eden, whenever the, the uh, or not Garden of Eden, when the Garden of Gethsemane, when the soldiers came and Judas led the band of Roman soldiers and the priests to come and to take Jesus, Jesus made this statement to that band of traitors and of black hearts. He said, this is your hour and the power of darkness. What he was saying was this, I could call a legion of angels to obliterate this earth and not leave an atom. And with the same word that I could call them, I wouldn't even need them. I could speak that same word and destroy every one of you. I could roll time backwards and make it as though you've never began. But he says, this is the hour for the power of darkness. What does that mean? Well, of course, he's talking about spiritual darkness. This was the hour of Satan's triumph, seemingly. The hour when the Son of Man would be taken and cruelly and brutally nailed to a cross and crucified for man's sin. Let's say it this way. That was our hour when the power of darkness should have overtook us. But instead he took our place and allowed the power of darkness to overtake him. That we might be translated from the power of darkness, delivered from the power of darkness, and translated instead into the kingdom of God's dear son. He took our place. So not only did he, does he effectually remake us to be prepared that we might live the life that He desires for us, but He also took care of that power of darkness that was our inheritance, that was our legacy, that was owed to us. He bore it, delivered us from it, and put us in the kingdom of His Son, where we have the administration and rule and authority of Christ as our Master. He gives one final thing, and I'm done. He says we ought to praise God for remaking us, for rescuing us, and for redeeming us. Verse number 14, listen, if I had four hours, I couldn't say everything that I want to say. And if I had four hours, I'd say everything I wanted to say. I'd get in the car and on the way home, I'd think of three more hours of things to say about the 14th verse of the first chapter of Colossians. But he says this, well, to give thanks, because in, in whom, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. If we have nothing else in our lives that we think... And listen, every one of us has more things to thank God for than we could think of. But if we think we have nothing else to thank God for in our lives, let me tell you what we have. We have the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. 
All this is going to provide and going to serve as a foundation. Because you know what? He's telling the church at Colossae, everything good in your life you've gotten from God and from His Son, Jesus Christ. Everything in your life worth having you've got from the Father and the Son. So don't turn your back on Him. In the midst of these heresies, of these doctrines seeking to creep their way in, don't turn away from Him. He's all that you need.